But as more and more of these rulings come out and we start to piece them together, is that patchwork, like quote unquote clarity, actually a workable regulatory framework? Or is it does it ultimately end up just being murkier and murkier waters as things become more complicated? Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, guys. Hey, Ryan. How are you? How are you? Hey, we're all here. We're at full strength. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we don't disappoint, <laughs> but it has been a while, hasn't it? It has. It's been a, probably, I'm going to guess a good month, maybe. I think more. It's a busy, it's a busy group. You know, we've got a lot going on. We're always on the road. On the road or on vacation. All right. I think we have a lot to cover today. So let's just, let's just jump right in. So three um, main stories that we wanted to dig into. So the first and, and probably the biggest piece of news from last week was, you know, a pretty significant ruling uh, coming out um, related to the SEC suit against Ripple. This has obviously been going on for quite some time. I think we said 30 months. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, you know, speculating on, you know, and, and, and digesting what this means for the ecosystem. So we'll talk a little bit about the case, the ruling and kind of where we see things going from here. Um, and then we'll uh, touch a bit on, um, some news around Celsius. Um, again, this was something that we had been monitoring for some, for some time following their bankruptcy filing last summer. Um, and then. I think we also want to dig into, um, uh, Prometheum. Um, you know, it's a company that, you know, has, has gotten quite a bit of airtime recently, particularly if you're on crypto Twitter. Um, and, and kind of, you know, what that company is, what it does and why people are so fascinated, uh, by it. So Jason, there's a long storied history here, right? Between Ripple and the SEC. So can you just give us maybe a, an overview of what the scope was? Um, and then maybe we could talk a bit about what last, last week's ruling was and go from there. Sure. So it's important to sort of go back in time a bit and understand what is Ripple and, and what is the business that they're in. So uh, Ripple was uh, a, a startup around 2012 or so. They were out trying to promote a solution to address friction in cross-border transactions. And they, they developed uh, an, a ledger that they called RippleNet. And RippleNet was going to be uh, this tool that people could use in order to move value across borders in a frictionless way. But instead of using fiat currency, it, it took advantage of a, a token called XRP, which is now uh, we refer to as Ripple, the token. So basically what happened is the Ripple uh, company raised funds from investors in order to promote the, the adoption of this technology in this, uh, this network, RippleNet. Um, and they did so through the sale of these XRP tokens. And what we saw was 
Over time, the SEC decided to bring a lawsuit against Ripple and a couple of its executives, uh, Chris Larson, one of the founders and original CEO, and uh, Brad Garlinghouse, current CEO. And basically, the SEC took the position that um, through the sale of these tokens into uh, venture investors, these were essentially like an IPO or an unregistered uh, security offering. So back in December of 2020, the SEC filed suit um, saying that Ripple was a security. Uh, right after that, we saw several exchanges delist the XRP token because they weren't sure how this was going to pan out. And basically, over the course of the last, call it um, two and a half years, Ripple has spent almost $200 million in defense of the suit brought by the SEC. And sort of bringing us back to what happened last week, um, the the judge, uh, the U.S. District Court judge in the Southern District of New York, uh, Judge Annalise Torres, basically ruled that Ripple, the foundation, uh, may have, in fact, uh, met the definition of an investment contract when they initially sold tokens to these venture investors. Um, and in that case, gave the SEC a partial victory. But what gained a lot of attention was that uh, Judge Torres also noted that the Ripple token itself, in terms of programmatic sales or secondary market activity, did not necessarily meet the same expectations of an investment contract because the the uh, investors, and I believe they may have been referred to as speculative investors, who were transacting in the open market in a bid-ask uh, way, did not know who the counterparty was on the other side of the transaction, and therefore, those uh, those investors did not have a reasonable expectation of profiting from the benefits of Ripple, the company. Whereas those initial or primary market investors did have the expectation that they could potentially profit from the efforts of Ripple as they intended to grow the utility and adoption of the RippleNet framework. So pretty interesting, I think, uh, for, for many folks here. The, the question is, well, why why would there be uh, co-defendants along with Ripple being uh, Mr. Larson and Mr. Garlinghouse? And the reason was that it was uh, it was essentially viewed that through their efforts, they were helping to promote uh, the adoption of, of the network and therefore uh, promote the value or potential growth of value of the XRP token. So um, in this case, the, the judge basically ruled in favor uh, of those defendants as well, indicating that Although she was not being asked to rule on whether or not Ripple was a security, her position was that one set of transactions met the definition of an investment contract and therefore would be subject to securities laws. But the other population of transactions, those that we refer to as secondary market or programmatic, did not. And in that context, Ripple was not a security. So maybe, Jason, a question for you here is that, because when I, when I first saw the, the judgment, I got slightly confused, and I'm sure a lot of others did too. For years, the crypto industry has been talking about whether token A is a security or not. But what I learned in the last week is that it's the nature of the contract or the nature of the sale which tells you that whether it's a security or not. Is that a fair assessment? So for institutions, it's a security, but for for centralized exchanges and DEXs, it's not? So I, I, I wouldn't exactly put it that way. And again, I, I would emphasize that each case is unique but in in this context the transaction type 
uh, the primary market transaction did involve some some institutions. In theory, it could have involved individuals as well. So it was really about the the how the transaction occurred. Um, I, I think a lot about whether or not the Howey test is applicable here. And the Howey test is a framework that's often used. And there, there are multiple prongs to the Howey test. And I think what's important is the transaction was viewed as an investment contract. It's not that the underlying investment was viewed as security. And Howey is known famously for being uh, basically a, a case that involved an orange grove. And in that case, the transaction was an investment contract. The underlying uh, asset being the oranges were not a security. So you could sort of think about this uh, as having a similar interpretation for that part of the suit. And then again, when you're talking about the secondary market transactions, uh, the programmatic trading, uh, Judge Torres indicated that they the investor had no reasonable expectation of benefiting from the efforts of Ripple, and they didn't know who their counterparty was. So there was not an expectation that the transaction constituted an investment contract. So again, there's an investment contract interpretation, and then there's a security um, definition. So in this context, the different transaction types either met the investment contract definition or did not, but the judge did not indicate or rule that Ripple was uh, was a security. And I think that's where people get confused. Um, we did see in the in the aftermath, some of the exchanges that had delisted Ripple tokens or XRP tokens previously had gone forward and, and, and relisted them. I believe uh, Coinbase and Gemini may have been uh, some of the first uh, to do so in the hours following the, uh, the ruling. So Jason, to my earlier point then around the comment with quote unquote programmatic investors, right? Buying XRP as a speculative investment, that question would really be within scope if we were talking about whether the, the, the token itself was a security rather than the investment contract question, which was kind of at the forefront of this, this case. I think it could. And again, obviously I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but what I do see is that if you're an exchange operator and you're operating in the secondary market, you might be really interested in this ruling from Judge Torres because you are not necessarily participating in an investment contract. You're making available in a bid-ask market for investors, whether they be speculative or uh, or arbitrage traders. Uh, they, in theory, would have the opportunity to evaluate the underlying asset on their own and make a determination of whether or not they expected any increase in value without the exchange being party to the creation of that value or promotion of that value. Again, just an opinion. It, it's not legal fact, but uh, that's how I interpreted it. I sort of have uh, two thoughts here. Uh, one, you could see the market response in prices of tokens. The tokens that were listed within SEC filings, you know, many of them uh, had a sort of a surprise bounce because I think the outcome maybe wasn't expected to be uh, this... I think you could argue like neutral. I think the crypto industry is looking at it as a positive because I think many thought the outcome maybe wouldn't have been as as uh, favorable. Where there is a piece that uh, the the primary market piece that you would argue like was in the SEC's favor, uh, and then the secondary market piece, which as Jason sort of alluded to, we're already seeing some exchanges say, "Hey, you know, maybe this isn't you know totally official law yet, but." This judge has now ruled on it, and we feel comfortable relisting this asset. Whether or not that's you know the right decision or not, 
isn't for me to judge, but we're already seeing like market responses from exchanges relisting these tokens, uh, from prices of these tokens going up and Bitcoin dominance coming down a little bit as these altcoins that live in regulatory ambiguity uh, start to rally off of this news of the potential that now maybe we're getting some answers on what is the proper way to go about you know a, an initial offering of some type, right? We're, we're going to probably see uh, a different like maybe more airdrops, right? Because I think airdrops sit in this realm that maybe make something not a security versus uh, sort of the the insider institutional game of VCs interacting directly with the the token offering, right? Which would be that you know sort of primary market interaction, uh, where like the the market dynamics are probably going to change to start to play along with the the rules as we get some type of clarity here. It, it's a very interesting take. Um, you know, I. I'm not sure how it, how it will ultimately unfold, but I, I do think about the one of the beautiful aspects of Bitcoin is that it was a fair release, and if you were willing to put in your your energy in in the the compute in order to start mining, then anybody had just as much access as anyone else who was choosing to participate in the network at that point in time. But yeah, I I, I think it still leaves a lot of open questions as to how tokens may or may not be defined as trans uh, as securities. But I do think it brings some additional clarity as to the transaction type, as you were talking about. So I'm not sure how airdrops will be classified. That's that's kind of interesting. Uh, one thing I do know is, regardless of the classification, you want to make sure that you have good accounting and good records for all of your transactions, regardless of how you uh, how you acquire the asset. Yeah, I do think that going back to what Jack was talking about about VCs, it does. It might put an end to the, the millions of dollars that VCs were getting in early convertible rounds. So remember how two years ago, you would have a bunch of VCs who would get pre-mined tokens, but they would also have equity in the startup, which to us was was baffling, right? Because how can you have pre-mined tokens, but also have equity in the startup? And so I think um, the, the phase of early gated access to token sales might actually be going away. Uh, but going back to other big crypto projects, so I think there are a lot of good projects, maybe like a MetaMask or maybe like a Base, which have been hesitant in launching a token because of regulatory concerns. And I'm not saying they'll launch a token now, but I feel like there is more breathing room for people issuing tokens responsibly, right? Just because we have seen some sort of clarity, I think that you might have more valuable token launches in the next few years, um, more geared towards a fair launch. Yeah, it's there's going to be a lot to watch here. I mean, I, I think one of the key aspects of this particular case that that people were really anticipating was the release of some communications from uh, former SEC director uh, Bill Hinman. Um, and you know, Mr. Hinman had that famous speech back in 2018 where he expressed his opinion that um, that Ethereum as an as an asset um, had become sufficiently decentralized to not be considered a security at that point in time, uh, despite maybe the initial the raise. So I, I know that people were anticipating some interesting tidbits. I haven't heard too too much more. Um, I did read in one case that it seemed that the SEC had removed Mr. Hinman's biography from their website uh, during this uh, during this trial. So that's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting random fact. But I, I'm really... I'm, I'm eager to see how the rest of the market responds to this in terms of 
Will there be additional tokens that get relisted um, or do exchanges continue to take uh, a more conservative approach? Because we still haven't had an answer to the question that is underpinning a lot of the, the reservation, which is how do we classify these assets? What determines whether or not a token is a security? And until we have regulatory clarity, we're still going to have speculation and we're still going to have um, some ambiguity related to uh, people stating positions as if they were facts without having the court cases or the, the congressional legislation to back it up. But I do think that this case here is is very important in terms of precedence and will be cited in many future cases. So maybe just to tell you how the market has reacted, a quick anecdote, especially in DeFi, would be Uniswap. So a lot of these uh, token initiatives were were not happening since uh, just, just because they wanted to stay clear of, of uh, SEC's radar. But Uniswap was one prime example where they were thinking of, they had a proposal to charge liquidity providers a fee and distribute those profits or dividends to the uni token holders, right? And so this may obviously seem like a security. And this proposal was uh, put on hold uh, due to concerns that the SEC might come in uh, in case uni token is deemed a security. And now yesterday, I just saw another proposal <laughs> to to revisit that topic uh, and then have another sort of round of voting. So you'll see, you actually see the market react pretty quickly, um, which is which is really interesting. And additionally, Parth, this has to have implications for things like we talked about before, Coinbase and the SEC's lawsuit that's ongoing. I don't know exactly what it means. I, I was actually going to raise that because I, I think there are, you know, no pun intended, there are some ripple effects here, right? Like where you, you know, we'll have this to Jason's point legal precedent. I think what's interesting about this is this is obviously, you know, in this ruling fairly highly nuanced, right? And I think it's likely that we'll see, you know, these types of rulings coming out some of the other pending cases, but as more and more of these rulings come out and we start to piece them together, is that patchwork like quote unquote clarity actually a workable regulatory framework or is it does it ultimately end up just being murkier and murkier waters as things become more more complicated if the legal precedent is super complicated then it's likely not going to be a super you know workable space for companies to build and innovate in i think this is the problem with regulation by enforcement action is like kind of boxes you in and it, you know it probably isn't the most efficient way to 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 regulate or, or create a framework for the space I mean, it, it was coincidental that there was another hearing going on in uh, Southern New York same day related to the, the SEC suit against Coinbase. And, you know, a, a big focus there is going to be on, I think, whether or not the the evaluation of Coinbase's documents uh, that which were filed in order for it to become a publicly traded company really indicate in the approval of that um, play a role in determining whether or not they're they're listing securities because you know, you would argue if Judge Torres's statement that transactions in the secondary market uh, do not meet the requirement for an investment contract, you could see how that might become part of the discussion and dialogue related to that particular SEC versus Coinbase suit. So again, too early to speculate. Every case is, is unique, but I think that's going to be a, a, a point that is referenced throughout the, uh, the upcoming case. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's um let's move on to Celsius because I know we have a few other things that we'd like to cover today. So um pretty coordinated actions taking against 
Celsius and their uh, former CEO, Alex Mashinsky, last week. Um, we saw, you know, federal charges filed against Mashinsky. He was arrested in New York on Thursday. Um, and, and there's was a series of charges stemming from securities, commodities, um, and wire fraud, as well as, um, you know, other market uh, manipulation um, violations, which was the first thing, or, or I, I guess it was pretty, pretty concurrent, right? Um, and then we also saw the SEC and the CFTC come out and file charges against Mishinsky and Celsius, um, stemming from similar activities, um, you, you know, primarily around fraud and securities manipulation. And so in the, in the federal, um, complaint. Uh, prosecutors are saying that uh, Mashinsky misrepresented uh, the safety of Celsius's yield-generating activities, <laughs> Celsius's prof- profitability, the long-term sustainability of Celsius's high rewards rates, and the risks associated with depositing crypto assets with Celsius. So that was that was on the on the federal side. And then the SEC is saying that Mashinsky repeatedly misrepresented the company's business model, which th- that's where you see overlap with the federal complaint, um, you know, potential risks to investors, um, funds, as well as um, you know manipulation around um, the price of uh, CEL, which is Celsius's native exchange token. I think this is interesting because Mashinsky he was a pretty vocal adversary to, to banking, right? Um, I, I think Jason, you and I were at have been at a couple events over the years where he spoke, and it, it was interesting to hear him you know talk about Celsius, talk about the safety of Celsius deposits, and really say having your money at Celsius in some ways was safer than having it in a bank, right? Um, and, and and he said this repeatedly, right, in, in many different forums. Um, and ultimately, that didn't end up being the case. We saw Celsius uh, declare bankruptcy almost a year to the day from all of these actions being taken, which I think is is a bit poetic when we think about the regulatory reeling in of of the space. Um, and then finally, there there was a there was a third thing that happened all on the same day, um, and that was that Celsius agreed to pay a, a four point seven billion dollar um, settlement with the FTC, um, you know, related to these charges and some of its business activities. I think it's worth noting, you know, this was one of the largest settlements. Um, You know, I think the other being um, a settlement with Meta, the FTC has ever had, um, but it will likely, you know, be a much smaller payment, if any payment, because the the payment is on pause pending, um, you know, some of the the bankruptcy proceedings as well as the repayment to to customers. So likely not going to be a lot of capital left, if any at all, um, to actually pay that fine with the FTC. So um, this is obviously something we've been monitoring since they filed for bankruptcy last year. Um, You know, this is one of the biggest failures, you know, you know, and there's some similarities with the others, like like BlockFi and with FTX. Um, you know, particularly m- maybe more so with FTX. But curious what you guys think about this. Yeah, Ryan, I think you like an important point there on the FTC uh, reaching a, a settlement with Celsius on a 4.7 billion dollar fine. It's not that the FTC is putting themselves ahead of depositors. That's actually the the opposite, right? And you you kind of alluded to it, yeah. where they're pausing or they're suspending, uh, and it's basically to ensure that Celsius as a business will no longer exist, basically, with, right. with a four point seven billion dollar fine when it appears there's already uh, a large hole relative to the depositor balances that are owed. Um, it basically just means that that, that Celsius Celsius won't exist anymore. Yeah, no, that's an important call out for sure. Thanks. I don't even think it's a it's a crypto story. Like this is a pretty straight up scam story. This guy just lied repeatedly, was way too much into under collateralized lending, 
was uh, leverage yield farming uh, on Anchor, a bunch of, I mean, I guess it's a crypto story then. He was, uh, yeah. they, they, they were leverage yield farming on Anchor and other protocols. And so, so much of Celsius funds were so anchored in the Terra protocol that it was, it just ended up going bust. I think you spoke about BlockFi, FTX in the same vein, but I think the, the outlier part of Celsius is the way Alex repeatedly lied by saying how safe the funds are. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, that's why I think I hesitated a bit because I think, you know, the, the cases, the three different cases are, are very different, right? And you could even lump Voyager in. Like, the, the similarities that they're all ultimately going to go out of business, right? I think the fraud piece, as we know, are, are you know, you know, related to the charges against um, SBF and FTX, like that may be, there may be some more similarities there in terms of, you know, misappropriating customer funds and lying to customers, right? Um, whereas BlockFi, it's, it's clearly different. Um, so that's also an important call out. Thanks, Barth. I think this is where launching forensics becomes really important because the first whistleblower to talk about Celsius was when one of the employees, uh, ad like addresses were tagged. And that's when they first saw how they were, they were, they had millions of dollars on Terra using the Anchor protocol, which was giving 20% back then. And so that's actually how the story unfolded initially. It's a case of uh, when it seems too good to be true, often it is, right? If I believe 18% on stable coins was what was being marketed at the time. And the only possible platform that you could have been receiving that on would have been on Anchor on, on Luna. Yeah. They were saying they were doing things in DeFi, uh, but rates in DeFi were not. 20% other than on Luna. So it was explicitly like either taking that risk or not uh, not returning uh, the rates that they said they were. But the that's time. the danger, right? Because when you market yourself as, you know, a substitute for a bank, right? And that's why I think that, you know, he, Mashinsky is like at the center of all of this, because when you market yourself as a bank, like the average investor is going to kind of create that association and the safety that comes along and the regulation underneath that goes along with being a bank right and so it's like wow they're offering you know 15 percent, and the average investor probably wouldn't look much further into it right where you really need to understand the the underlying dynamics of the market to know that it's 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 unsustainable right um and that's where i think that people got into trouble yeah. And I, I mean, I think back to the context and Jack, I was going to say, I think you say 18%. I remember 19, 20% talking with, uh, different, different folks about it. Um, I, I've got to say though, like, let's, let's look back in history. People are getting like a basis point or maybe 10 basis points if they're lucky on their deposits. So even if you offered them like 3%, you would have been doing much better than they could have done because at the time there was this massive search for yield. Uh, you know, we had, some countries actually having negative real rates. We had uh, negative real yields in some of the um, some of the assets that that were accessible to people uh, if they didn't want to leave their assets in a bank. But you know the fact that it was too good to be true, and that you could get you know not just double digits but you know upwards of twenty percent, it really played into the the greed aspect um, in in terms of that fear and greed index we often talk about. So. Um, I, in part, I'm glad you brought up forensics because in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, there's, it's in theory, if you have the right tools, it's a lot easier to understand the interrelationships in the crypto space than it is for the normal person to look at where there is counterparty credit exposure across the traditional financial services system. So, um, in, in some respects, you know, you would hope that we would have been able to identify these things earlier. It's just a question of those who did, did they profit off of it? Or were people not even interested yet? Or is it just too immature of an industry 
to have that mm-hmm. type of risk management being uh, forced on it. Yeah. And did we actually learn from it? You know, I think that that's, that's still, really a, that's still an open question, right? Yeah. Like, oh, um, yeah. It's, based on some of the activity that we're starting to see again, it would feel that way, wouldn't it? Um, okay. Let's, um, let's switch gears. Jack, can you tell me like who Prometheum is um, and what they do and why people in the crypto ecosystem specifically are so interested in this? Yeah, I, I absolutely can. And since I am not fully aware of exactly what Prometheum supposedly does, uh, I'll, I'll read it from their website uh, directly. So Prometheum Member Capital is the first SEC-registered broker-dealer in FINRA member firm approved to operate as a spe- special-purpose broker-dealer for digital asset securities. And this happened in May of this year. And this company, Prometheum, which from everything we can gather and understand, is supposedly a, a place where you can exchange digital asset securities. Uh, and they have this SPBD, special-purpose broker-dealer approval. Uh, from the SEC and I believe FINRA uh, as well that approved it. That was one month prior to uh, a June hearing in front of the House Financial Services Committee in which the CEO of Prometheum, this company, uh, was asked to testify on uh, whether or not crypto-specific rules should be created. Uh, and, and of course, because they're approved as a special purpose broker-dealer, uh, this CEO uh, sort of talked about the fact that the rules are already clear uh, that they have this special purpose broker dealer license and that other companies in the crypto space would be able to obtain that license as well if they sort of follow the rules. The problem is, I don't know anybody that heard of Prometheum prior to all of this. And I don't know anybody who knows anyone that uses Prometheum uh, to trade digital asset securities, to trade anything. Um, so everybody's sort of looking around, scratching their their head, saying, who is Prometheum and why did they receive this approval? And now, uh, up until just recently in the past few weeks, we're seeing uh, from both sides of the aisle, both Republican and Democrat, as well as the Blockchain Association, which, which is a, an industry uh, trade group, they're, they're asking for an independent investigation into the approval of Prometheum with this special purpose broker dealer license, because basically everyone's wondering, this is the only firm that we're aware of in the crypto space that has received this approval. How can they be used as a potential example that the current rules work for other crypto exchanges or intermediaries when nobody else has that approval in, in terms of like firms that people are actually using. So it's a, an interesting story that I, people are starting to ask, can we get to the bottom of this and understand you know, w- what this company is, why they were approved um, and, and whether or not it's fair to, to point to them as the example, because if nobody is using them to trade digital asset securities, just because you approved the company, doesn't mean that that's an example that the rules work if everyone that is actually offering services that people are using aren't able to get that same approval. I I don't know that much about the company either, but I did watch some of the uh, recordings of the congressional hearings, and I'll just say that they were uh, a bit testy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, the question is worth, you know, asking, right? Because it, it comes at a very 
contentious time, right, on the same topic with regard to regulations and registrations. And so I, I could see why companies that are operating in the space that claim to be following the rules that they have or the clarity that they've been given, right, are saying, hey, what's going on here? I think just one thing to note, which is interesting to me, kind of goes along with surveillance. I think as this hearing was happening, people were triaging this on crypto Twitter in real time, right? Like looking pretty deeply into this company its officers, where they worked before, you know, who they know. Um, and it's just an example of how uh, thrifty, we'll say, the space can be uh, when it comes to looking into these issues and something we've seen in the past, um, you know, really like triaging things in, in real time. But I think, again, this is, you know, a question that's worth asking. Probably I would think see some sort of investigation into it. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we probably eventually will. So it's something that we'll definitely circle back on. I think we can leave it there for today. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you guys for the discussion. I'm, I'm glad we had the team back together and uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good rest of your week. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.